to increase the rate of discovery of asteroids by 700 times relative to today's current discovery rate. Ciao and welcome to the Frontier Space Podcast, a dialogue about how space technology and exploration are transforming our solar system. 60 seconds in space. Discovered from the Chernobyl nuclear reactor failure, a 21 centimeter thick layer of radiation devouring mold or fungi covering astronauts could almost entirely mitigate the ambient radiation in space. And also by mixing traditional propulsion with shock waves and rotating detonation engines, a spacecraft could one day reach hypersonic speeds five times the speed of sound to travel faster to Mars and other celestial bodies. The way it works is by applying a shock wave or uh, forcing oxygen at higher speeds to the combustion chamber which rapidly mixes and creates turbulence in the propellant fuel and, and increases the temperature of fuel in the air making it um, uh, more easily combustible. Dr. Joel Sercell is an entrepreneur and pioneer with over 30 years of experience in systems engineering, space technology, and design. He's the founder and CTO at Trans Astronautica Corporation, a California-based startup building the transcontinental railroad of space. They're developing a lunar mining outpost at the Lunar South Pole, a synthetic asteroid tracking telescope constellation, and asteroid mining spacecraft rovers and eventually a uh, propellant depot. Greetings, Joel. We're... Uh... Honored to have you here today on our podcast. Hey, Cole. It's a delight to be here. This is going to be fun. I'm, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. And it was very inspiring to hear you um, at the Lunar Development Conference with the Moon Society uh, over the past few days. Well, it's been my pleasure to be involved in that conference. And uh, I think... Uh, getting together workers and people interested in the community to talk about lunar development makes a heck of a lot of sense. Um, you know, the moon is uh, a nearby object in space, not the nearest one uh, by many measures, um, but it's a very valuable resource for humanity. And it's been calling to us since the beginning of history. We need to get serious about getting back there, but this time getting back there to stay actually for the benefit of the species. How does it feel to be spearheading the creation of one of the first cities off world? It feels great. It's a lot of fun. And uh, our job is to go from concept to reality. So we're right now in the process of transitioning our work uh, for the lunar uh, outpost from conceptualization to engineering design and proof of concept. And then it'll be, um, you know, years in the making to turn that into a reality so that we can have, you know, people on the moon and uh, drinking lunar bottled water. Exactly. I was wondering what was your, your aha moment uh, at, at TransAstra? Well, Transaster is a series, a never-ending series of aha moments. So, and, um, and my involvement in space has been a series of aha moments that have started, you know, since 
I was a child. When I was a little kid, uh, my, I'm actually old enough that my father let me stay up way past my bedtime to watch first run Star Trek. And I think the opening sequence in Star Trek has just fundamentally inspired me my whole life long. You know, when Captain Kirk gets on and says, you know, these the voyage of the Starship Enterprise to boldly go where no one has gone before. Um, space, the final frontier. So the concept of a final frontier, of an infinite frontier, of an infinite never expanding frontier, and always going where no one has gone before has just been deeply inspiring to me my whole life. You know, we Homo sapiens, you know, are fundamentally at our core hunter gatherers. And during most of the time, during, you know, when, when sort of, you know, evolution is a continuing process and we're not done yet, but let's say when the final touches of our current form were put onto us, feeling during uh, Neolithic hunter-gatherer times, you know, there were a few million people spread out throughout the, the world in little pockets of villages. And every one of those villages was surrounded by the unknown. And so the human, the normal orientation of a homo sapien is to be in a small village surrounded by the unknown. And then the history of the species is that these villages would grow to a certain point where some people in the village would, um, for one reason or another, decide to strike out on their own. And, you know, they'd throw a backpack on and just head right out into the unknown. And whatever is behind the mountain ridge, behind the mountain ridge that you could see was unknown territory. And so this is the human condition and it is that spirit of always the quest for the unknown and finding out what's beyond the next mountain range that led to humanity spreading out all over the globe and being so successful as a species. And now here we're in this very strange time where the population density has been increasing and increasing and increasing. And here on the globe of the earth, there's no, there's no place to go for the unknown. And so the, the sort of natural human process of when things get crazy, get out of town, hasn't been taking place. And it's about time to make it take place again. And, um, you know, it's really inspiring to live in a time when we are at the threshold of making that happen. And, you know, it's, it's beyond historic. And so just as the species has been, you know, ready to make this leap into space, it's the whole biosphere that's ready to go. But now there's one species that has the intellect to carry itself and the biosphere into the solar system. It's also very fragile. There's, there are many things that could happen to the earth that would, uh, could potentially wipe out our species or you know, really set life back, or, or set life back to the point where it's no longer thriving and evolving. You know, um, uh, you know, there could be new microbes. I mean, the pandemic that we're facing right now 
is extreme, although it seems really terrible and it's a human tragedy and um, every life is precious, um, relative to pandemics of history, it's extremely mild. Yes. So one of the Iraq, Iraq, Eureka's that started Transaster was, I was consulting a few years ago for a government client located on the East Coast who was looking at buying rockets and they wanted to know if SpaceX rockets would be good rockets for them to buy. This was before they were certified to sell the Falcon 9s to the Air Force and so on. And, you know, as, as I looked into, you know, I looked across what was happening in space, I realized an area where there was a lack of innovation and a lack of really great technical progress. I was trying to figure out how to harness the resources, the asteroids, to make things more cost-effective in space. So that's why Transaster started with um, asteroid resource mining. And then more recently, we've also focused on lunar resource mining because we really think that wherever you go in space, you have to harness the local resources. And so, um, so our mission is to be a, the resource supplier to the new age of industrialization and settlement of space. So that was a long-winded answer, but what the heck. Yeah, that's a, a very profound uh, words. We're in um, three different areas. One is asteroid mining and our optical mining method of asteroid mining and our APHIS architecture. APHIS is the genus name for honeybees and we've designed a series of spacecraft named after bees that can go out and gather water, which is the nectar of the solar system. Um, uh, and you know, the, the main uh, vehicle that we've designed there is called the honeybee. And uh, the vehicle itself is um, about as big as the biggest communication satellites that get launched into geostationary orbit. And what it can do is it can fly out to an asteroid capture the asteroid in a, in a bag, if you will, a sack, a, a membrane enclosure, and then use our patent pending optical mining method to extract hundreds of tons of ice from an asteroid and bring that ice back to cislunar space, the orbit around the Earth and the moon, where we plan to build a propellant depot and processing center that can turn that ice into rocket propellant that we can sell to governments and private sector ventures to make everything more cost-effective in space. So the honeybee is our core vehicle that we're really focused on. But um, before we can build the honeybee, because it's a big, you know, big high-tech system, we need to demonstrate the basic technologies in space. And NASA is actually funding us through a NIAC phase three to build something we call the mini bee, which is actually a tabletop sized version of the honeybee that has all the elements of the technology for the honeybee vehicle. And uh, we have a $2 million contract with NASA that we're marrying up with over a million dollars in private sector investment. So we're building an engineering model of the mini B right now. And we intend to um, build and test that engineering model hardware on the ground over the next year and a half, and then fly the mini B in space in about two and a half years. And once the mini B is flown in space, we'll demonstrate all of the key aspects of our asteroid mining technology. And um, with that in place, um, we think it'll be very straightforward to work with NASA and the private sector and public-private partnership to get the funding to build the honeybee. And, and then when we start harvesting hundreds of tons of ice at a time, uh, uh, 
then all bets are off and uh, the industrial revolution of space will begin. Because with all that rocket propellant, low cost rocket propellant in space, um, the economics of space development just completely change. And on the APHIS roadmap, beyond mini B and honey B is queen B. Queen B is a super heavy asteroid mining vehicle. Uh, and each one is designed to be able to handle thousands of tons of ice to bring back to the earth. So we're really excited about that. And that all came from an IAC phase one proposal that we won uh, about four or five years ago that basically defined the APHIS architecture. Then that led to a phase two effort in which we built the optical mining test bed, which is a big experimental platform to demonstrate optical mining on the ground. And then that led to our phase three where we're building the mini B. We also won a phase one proposal, which we hope to turn into a successful phase two for our Sutter Survey, Sutter Ultra telescope system. Um, Sutter's Mill was a place in California where gold was first discovered and it led to the California gold rush and the settlement of California. So we've de de designed a new breakthrough um, telescope constellation called the Sutter Survey constellation that uses a whole bunch of really exciting patent pending technologies to increase the rate of discovery of asteroids by 700 times relative to today's current discovery rate. And we know mathematically and scientifically that there are thousands of asteroids that are in very Earth-like orbits around the sun, just at one astronomical unit around the sun, the same way the Earth goes, um, that even though they're millions of miles away on average in space, they come drifting by the Earth and there are several that drift by the Earth every year. And when they do, they're much easier to get to than the surface of the moon. And those are gonna be our targets for asteroid mining. And the Sutter telescope system is gonna find them. And it's also gonna find um, the vast majority of the remaining asteroids that could be potential threats to the Earth. So it has dual purpose. And it's gonna be a great scientific instrument also. So we're working closely with our investors in NASA to figure out a way to get that funded. And we're excited about that. And then the last area of research, which also came from a NIAC effort, is our effort is our lunar polar mining outpost, which includes ways to get power into the lunar poles and also to extract uh, hundreds of tons of ice to make it all happen. So that's a little bit about that. Wow, I, it, it sounds like an incredible journey. Uh, yeah, so you know, it's so fun. It's, it's great to find a mission in life where you think you could make a difference for the species and leave behind a legacy. I mean, obviously my greatest legacy is my sons. I have three sons that are my pride and joy, who are my pride and joy. But in terms of professional legacy, to be able to contribute to being able to, uh, to be able to contribute to our species having the ability to harness resources in space so that um, we can live off the land of space, whether that means asteroids floating in deep space or ices on the poles of the moon. That's really something. And get to, to get to work on that with incredibly talented people. Our crew at TransAstra is incredibly talented. Young people, professors. Wonderful. I was wondering, um, could you share more about your plans with, with uh, the lunar mining uh, outpost and, and sun. 
Well, the the lunar polar mining outpost, the idea is to make an evolving uh, facility on the moon. It starts off with just prospecting for where's the ice and demonstrating the basic technologies that you need in order to make an outpost on the moon. And um, our concept for the lunar propellant mining outpost is based on two technologies that were really, two patent pending technologies that we're really proud of. One is called the um, Sunflower uh, Lunar Power Tower. And Sunflower Power Towers are a way to get um, copious sunlight and energy into the dark, permanently shadowed regions on the moon. So that's one of the inventions. The other invention is something we call radiant gas dynamic mining, which uses a combination of microwave, RF, and infrared heat in a roving vehicle to directly heat the lunar regolith, which is infused with water ice, vaporize that, uh, that water, and collect it in a, in a dome where there's a dome built into the rover. We call the rovers beetles. And um, so to collect it in the beetle rover domes in uh, continuous flow cryo traps that we have um, patented uh, that can basically take that water vapor, turn it to ice and liquid and pump it directly into tanks. So between the beetle rovers and the sunflower um, power towers, we think we have cracked the problem of low-cost permanently inhabited outposts on the moon. Uh, Really curious about this uh, sintering uh, methodology and technology you're you're developing. I was wondering what what, what, uh, do you believe will be the optimal temporal pulse repetition of, of uh, the sintering frequencies on, on the lunar regolith to, to free the volatiles. So we're not working with sintering, we're use, but we are using a couple of different radi- frequencies of radiation. We use low frequency um, RF radiation to inductively heat the regolith. We actually borrow that technology from toxic waste cleanup technology here on the earth. And then we use microwave energy to heat the, um, to heat the regolith to vaporize the water. Um, In our current experimental program, we're using 2.45 gigahertz microwave radiation, the same as in a microwave oven, because it's very efficient and inexpensive to work with. Um, And our our initial tech demo rover for the moon would also be based on microwave oven frequencies for heating. Um, But as we go to five meter diameter rovers, we can put about five of those inside a single New Glenn fairing. Um, we'll, tr- we'll drop to um, 900 megahertz radiation, which um, is commonly used for industrial heating applications like cooking tons of bacon or um, uh, drying wood pulp. And you can get very, very efficient L-band microwave generators uh, these L-band 900 megahertz generators at 50 to 100 kilowatts. So those rovers will be uh, really high power systems. Do, do you believe it would be uh, more effective to angle and, and tilt the, um, the uh, heat radiating uh, panel 
rather than pulsing at the same angle um, around the clock? Um, that's an internal design detail that we're, we're working with every day. And so we actually have some solutions to those problems that we don't talk about in public. So you just have to stay tuned for a year or so until our patent process moves along further and we've validated our approaches and then we'll tell you what we're doing. Exciting. Look, looking forward to hearing about it. Sure. You'll be uh, installing these, these large 800 uh, meter towers at, at, at the lunar South pole near, near uh, particular craters. Probably we think, we think the North pole is better than the South pole. You know, the South pole is dominated by Shackleton crater which is not a place you wanna hang out. Uh, the terrain there is really quite treacherous and um, it's much wiser to build outposts on more gentle terrain. And we actually have found some gentle terrain near the South Pole that could be good. And there's also some gentle terrain near the North Pole. Um, we're pretty excited about that. And we're, gonna, we're building the mini B in our lab here and we'll also be building the a one meter um, dome for the, uh, the Beetle Rovers uh, that will be building and testing here and then moving to Michigan at Michigan Tech. Uh, so humanity has always brought its strengths and weaknesses with it wherever it went. Now the great thing about space is that there's no biosphere on the moon and there's no biosphere on the asteroids. So we don't have to worry about destroying biospheres there. But we need to be very careful as we go to other bodies that may have biospheres, to be highly respectful and make sure we don't go in and pollute those environments before we confirm that there's no biosphere. And I'm specifically concerned about Mars. Um, probably the greatest scientific question and philosophical question that we face as a species is, are we alone? To what extent are we alone? And how common is life in the universe? And to address that question, we need to find out if there's life on Mars and Europa and Titan, places like that. And so we need to do our exploration of those places with great care and respect for the environment. And so to me, that means that the places to go to build and settle are places like the moon and the asteroids and not Mars. And I would be an advocate of many very robust robotic explorers going to Mars, thoroughly looking in every crevice and uh, canyon and really understanding the Martian environment, its potential history of life and the microbes that may or may not be there now. If we discover life on Mars, it will be a profound discovery, deep philosophical importance. We need to make sure that we don't just go and mess it up in the process. And the good news is that we have that luxury. Likewise, you know, human, humanity is in conflict all the time. And the, the, the solution to conflict is the rule of law and, and, and the Bill of Rights. And we need to make sure that we go forth with the rule of law, free markets, freedom, respecting the Bill of Rights and other natural rights. And that means that um, countries like the United States that respect those things need to go and make sure that, um, that it's safe for industry and explorers as we move forward. Um, 
And so I'm a big advocate of the Space Force as a result. Because if we see you know, what countries like China do on the open seas, the way they're so violent to other countries' fishing boats and everything, we can't let that happen. We can't let piracy and the equivalent of piracy occur in space. So it's a wonderful opportunity to learn from our past and do it right this time. So I'm a big advocate of that. I just wanted to make sure we talked about that. Thank you for sharing. I uh, couldn't agree more. Uh, I, my last question, I, I would love to hear uh, uh, more about your, your long-term plans at uh, Transastra and where you, you envision um, us in, in by, by 2050. By 2050. Well, it's an exciting time to be in the space business. But what's great is that now we live in the age of um, tech industrialists who are building the new world. And, um, you know, just as the technologies and businesses of the Industrial Revolution allowed the existence of the middle class, brought clean water and electric power, you know, to most of the globe. Um, you know, guys like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are invent investing their fortunes into making this happen. And, um, uh, and we're getting low cost. We're getting what looks like will be genuinely low cost, genuinely routine access to space. When that happens, all kinds of businesses that we couldn't even talk seriously about for the last few decades start to make sense. Um, it makes a lot more sense to put telecommunications in space than on the ground uh, because you don't have to deal with the, the latency issues and the cost of fiber optics. And when telecommunications backbones are in space, it makes a lot more sense to put data servers, uh, data farms, um, uh, data processing in space than on the ground because you've got unlimited solar power to drive uh, the, the data centers. And so um, there's about 10 times as much sunlight per day per square meter in space than there is on the surface of the earth. So while solar panels kind of make sense sometimes economically here on the earth, they absolutely make sense in space. And as we get the cost down, it'll make a lot more sense to generate and consume electric power in space than on the ground. We have unlimited access to resources like the asteroid belt. There's, there are billions of asteroids. There's enough material in the asteroid belt to build artificial worlds in space with a thousand times the carrying capacity of the Earth. Now that's not 50, that's not 2050, that's a thousand years in the future. Um, so there's an unlimited future for us. And by the end of the 2020s, we will see factories being built in space using material harvested from asteroids. We'll see hotels in space, thousands of people in space all the time. We'll probably see the beginnings of a lunar hotel. By 2050, um, millions of people live in space in worlds adapted to our need that, would, that are made out of asteroids. Um, where with radiation shielding and artificial gravity and natural environments that we design and specify. Um, uh, and so, and, 
and it, it will fundamentally change the orientation of the people on the earth when they realize it's not a fixed sum game and there's no dead end in sight. And it will move us to a more optimistic view of the future, which causes people to be more cooperative and um, expansive in their thinking and optimistic in their approach to things. So it'll breed a new optimism that will uh, make Earth a better place to live. And as we're generating our electric power and producing our manufactured products in space, Earth will get even better. I, absolutely. Um, and, and I'm really grateful for, for, for you and uh, everything you guys are doing over there. And, and keep My pleasure. On the work. Hey, it's terrific. Thanks so much for reaching out to me. I hope your audience enjoys this. And people can always connect to me on LinkedIn. And, um, you know, if young technical professionals have questions or seek mentorship or anything like that, they should reach out to me. All right, you have a wonderful day. Thank you.